Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Uh, Boston is not unique in the underworld uh, code of Omerta. That is, you don't talk. You don't give it up. Uh, you don't, even if you're not involved and you don't know anything, you don't talk about it. It's a really interesting notion that a theft of this magnitude, the greatest art heist in history, was carried out so that the thieves would have bargaining chips to get people out of prison. It still had, they still have the frames of the paintings in the museum, but no paintings. But for the artist who wants to see how did Rembrandt paint the sea, only one painting shows that. That was hanging on the second floor of the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. Step inside a Venetian palace, not far from the heart of Boston. It's definitely very inviting. Find comfortable rooms. It was very beautiful, very breathtaking. Filled with world-class Renaissance art. This is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, named for an amazing woman with a passion for the arts. She was kind of ahead of the game in terms of collecting. So she bought some Rembrandts, um, a Botticelli, a Michelangelo, several Raphaels. Around the turn of the 20th century, an art collector in Boston named Isabella Stewart Gardner began drawing up plans to build a museum. She brought the world here to Boston and put it in this little jewel box. The museum would open in 1903, sharing with the public Isabella Stewart Gardner's private collection of more than 7,500 paintings, sculptures, and other works of art. Her mission was to share beauty. She thought that people in the country and the city of Boston really needed to see beauty and that that would inspire them and educate them and sort of uplift them. The Isabella Stewart Gardner is a one-of-a-kind museum that attracts visitors from all over the world. It's almost like someone's home that is just filled with great art Admittedly, it's not like your home or my home. It's an extraordinary place. But it's it, it's not this gigantic museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York or even like the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. It's more intimate. So you feel more of a connection with it, I think. But art lovers haven't always been the only ones with their eyes on this museum. The museum is the site of the largest art heist in U.S. history. 13 items worth an estimated $500 million were stolen. It's an ongoing investigation, and we really are very hopeful that one day we will welcome those works back to the collection. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? 
Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. My name is Rob Caldwell. I'm an anchor and reporter at New Center, Maine. I've been here for 39 years. Earlier this year, Rob Caldwell sat down with Steve Kirkjian, a journalist and author of the book Master Thieves, the Boston gangsters who pulled off the world's greatest art heist. Steve Kirkjian is a retired reporter for the Boston Globe. He worked for the Globe for, I think, 40 years, very much in that ballpark. He has won every national investigative award there is to win just about. One of the really really impressive investigative reporters of our time. And one of the things that's particularly interesting about Steve is that he was born and raised in Boston, and he went to high school at Boston Latin, which is just a couple of blocks away from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, where the heist occurred. So for Steve, this isn't just a story. This is like, this is part of his DNA, practically. This has always been uh, for time immemorial, at least since 1903, uh, the centerpiece of Boston's cultural world, right here, right behind us. And um, uh, the, the, the mystery has taken over part of that um, story of what happened that night, uh, now almost 32 years ago. Uh, but still, this, this place is an extraordinary place when it comes to, to artistic achievement. 32 years later, Kirkjian still remembers every last detail about what happened in the early morning hours of March 18th, 1990. I think the bad guys chose that moment in time uh, to do it because of what that night meant. That is the early morning hours after Boston's um, holy holiday of St. Patrick's Day. So my sense is that the bad guys knew that whoever was patrolling the streets in the cruises uh, would be a minimal force and they'd be working overtime. And they wouldn't be as quick to respond. That's, you know, they were always looking for the nth degree advantage. So uh, that's why the bad guys chose at uh, one o'clock in the morning to drive up to the side door and ring the bell and announce themselves dressed in police uniforms. Uh, We're here to investigate a disturbance Uh, Let us in. In the early morning hours of March 18th, about the time that the bars would be closing down after St. Patrick's Day, two men dressed in the uniforms of Boston police officers showed up at the entrance to the Gardner Museum. They rang the buzzer. They were led inside by the security guard. And they got the security guard to walk away from his desk by saying, hey, you look familiar. I think we've got a warrant out for you. So the security guard made two big mistakes in a very short period of time. First, he let these guys in when he shouldn't have let them in because there was no reason for the cops to come in. They said that they'd heard about a disturbance there. There wasn't a disturbance there. He let them in, and then he walked away from his desk so that they could get a good look at him because they said, hey, well, there might be a warrant out for you. That's when the, the two guys who were dressed as cops overpowered the security guard 
And they then spent about the next hour and a half in the museum and made off with 13 works of art. Five of those 13 works of art were framed paintings. And the thieves didn't just grab the paintings off the walls. They actually cut the canvases out, leaving behind five empty frames. Yanked the paintings, the canvases, out of the frames and then took them out. Now, earlier in the evening, some people who'd been walking by had seen the two guys dressed as police officers sitting in a hatchback outside the museum. They thought that was a little weird, but they didn't say anything because the people who saw the two cops were young, they were underage, and they'd been drinking, and they didn't want to get in trouble. So that hatchback is kind of interesting because if you're stealing 13 works of art, some of which are really big, you don't just stuff them into a hatchback. You'd need some kind of a panel truck or something like that. But in this case, the guys just stole the canvases, presumably rolled them up, stashed them in the back of the hatchback, and then made off. According to the museum's website, motion alarms recorded the thieves' movements inside the museum. They started out in the museum's Dutch room, where they took two Rembrandt paintings, as well as paintings by Vermeer and Flink. They also grabbed an ancient Chinese bronze beaker, as well as a small self-portrait etching by Rembrandt, before moving on to another room on the same floor, the short gallery. There, they took five Degas drawings and a bronze eagle finial. Then, they grabbed a Manet from the museum's blue room before departing the museum at 2.45 a.m. The most famous piece they took was by Rembrandt. And it's interesting because it is the only painting he ever did that portrays, um, that portrays the ocean. And this is something that, to art historians, to art lovers, is one of his great works. And that's the one that is really at the heart of this. Whenever you see a story, pretty much, on what was stolen from the museum that night, the work you see is the Rembrandt from On the Sea of Galilee. At the time, the 13 works of art were valued at around $200 million. Now, estimates put the value as high as $500 million. The FBI moves in very quickly because they figure it's an interstate crime that this isn't just work that is going to be stolen in, stolen in Boston and is going to stay in Massachusetts. So the FBI kind of comes in at Bigfoot's, the state and the city police. And that's key because Steve Kirkchian, who has written the book Master Thieves about this, says that in his opinion, the state and local police would have done a better job of checking every box. They would have had more manpower and they would have gone over every single possible lead more comprehensively than the FBI did. Shame on Boston and shame on Massachusetts State Police for allowing that to happen. Not that they're bad guys. There was some sense that the, since we learned that the FBI had, but not the Boston office, but one of the, one of the units in the Boston office had been corrupted. They had been corrupted by uh, James Whitey Bulger, had taken gotten influence with some of the heads of the office. But the main everyday FBI agents, clean as a whistle. But I, they, didn't have, they didn't have a laundry list of things to do with it. And I think had they brought the state police and Boston police in, that you would have had more checklist type of investigation. Who's talking to him? Who's talking to them? Who's looking at the forensics? Who's checking 
uh, every flight in, every flight out. Who's checking anybody who's ever done a crime involving dressing up? That kind of stuff hadn't, wasn't done. The investigation, after a few weeks, the investigation fell on one agent. There's also a school of thought, isn't there, that simply Boston police and Massachusetts State Police would have had better connections. They just knew yep. the territory yeah, better, they, and they knew they the knew, players. They uh, knew the, the bad guys. I think you're right on that, but I also think that there is a sense that FBI was had, they had really good eyesight into organized crime. What it was is just checkbook, just going out, checking off who's going to talk to whom, who's going to check what priority because as we've found out over the years some of the stuff the FBI they never did I mean I was I was talking to people uh, the guard who made the the grief the major errors of letting the bad guys in after an initial two initial interviews with him they forgot about him and when I sat with him I would ask him questions and he said gee nobody ever asked me that so the question of just how the FBI handled this investigation has been at the heart of this story from the beginning. A lot of people think that the FBI just bungled it. Clearly, after 32 years, the, the crime never having been solved and the paintings not being recovered, it is not the FBI's finest hour. Over the years, reward money for viable leads that could result in a safe return of the art is multiplied. The rewards are an interesting part of the story. The reward that was posted right away was a million dollars. Years went by, it was up to $5 million. More time went by, it was up to $10 million. And that's where it is now. You'd think that kind of reward would get someone to talk, but it hasn't yet. We don't know exactly what kind of information has been provided to the FBI because the case is ongoing, the case is active, and they're not talking about it. But clearly, clearly, we do know that the reward, the offer of a reward, has not led to the actionable results that everybody hoped would be the case. The museum has said, to their knowledge, the $10 million reward is the largest reward ever offered by a private institution. But it still hasn't been enough to track down the stolen works of art. Why has nobody talked about it? Why have people who had knowledge of the crime never opened their mouths, especially with that $10 million reward? Well, uh, Boston is not unique in the underworld uh, code of Omerta. That is, you don't talk. You don't give it up. Uh, you don't, even if you're not involved and you don't know anything, you don't talk about it. But $10 million will loosen lips, won't it? It should have. And maybe it did. I don't know that because I don't know what the FBI has, but it hasn't gotten us a eureka of a recovery. That you're absolutely right. Steve Kirkjean's theory is that the reason this has not been solved after all this time is that the mobsters, the criminals who were who carried this out and who then maybe knew about who conducted the crime, who carried out the crime, and 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 who perhaps knew about who might have had the paintings or had access to the paintings. Those mobsters did not want to talk. They followed the code of silence. They didn't want to rat out their friends and then maybe get rubbed out themselves. So they just haven't talked. The people who knew just haven't talked to the investigators. And the investigators, therefore, just can't put the pieces of the puzzle together. Or, or if the investigators have a really good idea of who did it, they can't put it together in such a tight 
bulletproof way that they could take it to prosecutors and prosecutors could then file charges and go to court. The motive for a heist like this might seem obvious. The artwork was worth a ton of money, but there might be a little more to it than that. Steve Kirkjian thinks there's no question that the crime was carried out by Boston mobsters. And he believes that the motive is that the thieves weren't looking to keep the art. They weren't looking to sell the art. What they wanted to do was use the stolen artworks as leverage so that they could go to prosecutors or police or both and use the stolen art as leverage to get reduced prison sentences for guys who were doing time in prison. It's a really interesting notion that a theft of this magnitude, the greatest art heist in history, was carried out so so that the thieves would have bargaining chips to get people out of prison. Wasn't done to make millions of dollars because it would be hard to sell this stuff anyway. It wasn't done so that someone could hang a Rembrandt in his living room and just gaze at it for the next 30 years. It was done so that they so that the thieves would have leverage to get some of their associates, some of their criminal associates out of prison. There have been numerous leads over the years. One of the more promising involving a guy named Robert or Bobby Garenti. Bobby Garenti was a criminal in the Boston area, a mobster in the Boston area. And the reason that I talked to Steve Kirkjean about him was because of there's a main connection and I'm a reporter based in Maine. There is a theory, and Kirkjean thinks it's very credible, that Bobby Garenti stashed at least some of the paintings at a house he owned in Madison, Maine. Let's talk about a potential, potential Maine connection. Sure. There is a, there are stories that have been told by people who are connected in some way yep. with the people who may be connected to the heist. The story goes that a guy named Bobby Garenti, who was a criminal in the Boston area. Yep. Part of the family. At one point, may, may have had some of the paintings mm-hmm. and stored them at a house he owned in Madison, Maine. <laughs> do you find this story credible? I do. I find it very credible that Garenti had access to the paintings. According to that theory, a friend of Garenti's, another Bobby named Bobby Donati, was directly involved in pulling off the actual heist. And Garenti only came into possession of some or all of the artwork at a later date. Garenti died in 2004, and it didn't take long for family members to start approaching the FBI after that. At one point, Bobby Garenti's daughter went to the authorities and said, I can, I have some evidence that shows that my father at one point had the paintings. And she brought to the authorities, to the investigators, these chips of flaking paint from allegedly the stolen paintings, what did the test show? They tested, they did not test to be coming from anything, from any paintings or stolen paintings that probably came from the ceiling of their their house in Madison, Maine. Uh, So this evidence was utterly worthless. Utterly worthless. In 2010, Garenti's widow, Eileen, also went to the FBI, claiming to have information on the whereabouts of the paintings. And to make all of this just a little trickier to follow, that information involved a third guy named Bobby, Bobby Gentile. Uh, Aline, down in her luck, uh, uh, reached out to a person uh, who she told the, later told the FBI, uh, he has the paintings. My husband, before he passed away, gave two or three of the big paintings to his best friend, another Bobby Gentile, who lived in Manchester, Connecticut. 
Uh, and uh, she, like I said, in 2010, she told that story to the FBI. The FBI went to Gentile's home, knocked on his door in Manchester, Connecticut, did the right thing, said, all we want is the paintings back. And just give them back. No one gets charged. Um, you may even have an access to the reward. And, um, and, and, and every, every, this, this case gets solved. Uh, and um, she went to the grand, I think she went to the grand jury, I believe she did, and testified that her husband in six years before, in 2004, had given the paintings uh, to his great friend Gentile. And um, Gentile denied it. A 2012 indictment on drug and weapons charges would allow federal investigators to search the home of Bobby Number 3, Bobby Gentile. And they went through it uh, like two days. They went carried every newspaper out. Uh, they didn't find signs of the, of the artwork. Uh, they had, but they did find two interesting things. In the basement, they found a newspaper that the Boston Herald that was covered the theft from the next day, from 1990. And inside the newspaper, this is how thorough the FBI was, is they found a sheet of paper and written was Every of all each of the thirteen items, in the French, in original French, uh, with what the item would get on the black market. So that's a pretty good find. That to me is very suspicious. Gentile says I did. You know, Bobby Garanti and I we wanted to find the paintings. It was, it was renewed to a five billion dollar reward, but he never gave them to me. He never had them. I never had them. Blah blah blah. After searching the house, investigators went out back where Gentile had a shed. And the backyard shed uh, was like every one of our backyard sheds. And you opened it up, he gave me, I interviewed him for my book. Uh, He gave me access to the shed, opened it up. It had these big Rubbermaid uh, bins in them. And I said to him, what are these bins there? And he said, well, they think I had the paintings in them. And I said, well, that would be pretty evident. He says, no, no, below the ground. I said, what do you mean below the ground? He had dug up uh, the uh, the wooden floors of the of the uh, bin and dug ditches, and in the ditches he had hid the uh, the bins. And what they think happened, this is, I don't have proof to say it's right or wrong, but what they think happened is Bobby had the paintings, uh, um, uh, Gentile had the paintings, had put them in the bin, covered it up just to keep it safe. Uh, unfortunately, there was a, a flood in the backyard. And what they believe was happened was the artwork of the ages. The Vermeer and the two Rembrandts were ruined in the bin, in the ditch, below the, the, the false floor. Of the, of the, of the, I mean, you can't get more uh, tragic comic than these guys uh, having access to this artwork. Steve Kirkshian firmly believes that at least some of the paintings were wrecked when a mobster living in Connecticut buried them under a shed in his backyard and the area flooded. He, Kirkshian, thinks that he got really close to getting that guy to admit this before he died but the mobster just wouldn't come out and say it. But that's Steve Kirkjian's theory, is that at least some of these paintings have been ruined 
because this guy stored them under a shed. It sounds so crazy. It sounds like something out of his grade B crime comedy. Stored them under a shed in his backyard and the area flooded. Well, let's bring this story up to the present. You've been covering this saga now for more than three decades. Yeah, right. This crime has yet to be solved. Do you think that you will ever see it solved? Uh, my hope is yes. Uh, but I think there has to be some changes, some outreach to the public. That I don't think it's going to be solved with investigative Eureka. Part of the problem is that clearly many of the players who might have known something or been involved have died. They all died. Donati was killed in 91. Uh, Garenti was died uh, in 2004. And Bobby Gentile uh, died in, in, in 2021. Um, you know, I haven't heard of anybody coming forward to say, oh, it's time now that I give the information up as to whereabouts. Of, so, uh, if- so even if we know who did it, which I think we did. We don't know where, what they did with it. If the insiders haven't come forward yet after 32 years and offered the information that'll put an end to this, why do you think the public can do so? Because I think there are bits and pieces of the puzzle. I mean, I may know, or the, so certainly authorities know the big pieces and how they fit together, but the bits and pieces about where these individuals who had access to the paintings, where they may have hid them. You know, there's a possibility, a probability that they were beneath a, uh, a false floor of a shed in Manchester, uh, uh, Connecticut. Anywhere is possible. But what you need is little, there's the smaller pieces that give us a whereabouts of where he was on that weekend. We know where he was every other weekend. Where was he that weekend? And whom was he with? And where did they go? Uh, Those people haven't stepped forward. And the reason why they haven't stepped forward is because they don't know the exact whereabouts. But I think that trail can be sharpened by the information they have of where any of the Bobbies were in whatever weekend that the feds don't know about. And how do you get those people to step forward who say, whatever I I have, I don't know where it is is to give the, to tell them that your information is important. Pick up the phone, call the museum's investigator, call the FBI, call an investor, call someone, call your local police department and tell them, I think I may have information. And you don't know how that piece is going to fit into a puzzle that, that would get us a whereabouts, or would get the authorities a whereabouts as to where the paintings are. Today, empty frames still hang in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which calls the frames a placeholder for the missing works and symbols of hope awaiting their return. 200 years from now, nobody's going to care really who stole the paintings. Right. But they are going to care if those paintings have not ever been returned to this museum. So that's maybe the biggest question of all. What do you think the chances are that these paintings will ever be returned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, logic and uh, tells you, you know, it's it, it's not going to it's not going to happen. It's not going to be returned. 
But, you know, uh, the Red Sox won the World Series after 89 years of, uh, of frustration. Uh, we're not even close to 89 here. So, uh, you know, if, if Boston understands the importance of this, uh, I think it, the, the essential tip remains to be called in. And, and when you think of the, what we achieved to get this back on the, on the wall, to get the, uh, the inspiration, not just the inspiration of solving this crime and getting these majestic masterpieces back, but for the artist who wants to see how did Rembrandt paint the scene. Only one painting shows that. That was hanging on the second floor of the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. Only one way can you see that. It's in that storm of the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, that, so that, that makes me keep going, keep working. Keep making the phone calls. Keep explaining this importance to the public. Maybe the, the missing, that missing piece fits in and we get a Eureka. It's well worth, it's well worth my time and it's well worth the time of uh, art lovers everywhere, I think. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman. Reed, I know some of our listeners will be familiar with this story. I, I've known about it and you know heard about it in some details over the years. I haven't gone down the rabbit hole, so to speak, that you've probably been down as you've covered this this week. But, I mean, for art lovers, for art historians, it's a tragedy. As a true crime story, it's just amazing. And uh, there, there's so many elements to it. But uh, it, it's just one of those stories that every time I hear a little bit more about it, I find it fascinating. Yeah, Will, before you you know start connecting any dots, I want to get out ahead of something. I do drive a hatchback, but I have never <laughs> been to Boston. I guess I also wasn't alive in 1990, so you can safely rule me out. Right. I mean, I find myself visualizing just the the process of cutting a canvas out of the frame and how they did all that. But and the hatchback is, yeah, that's a whole nother element. Um, so, so you know, to pull off such a big heist and to get away with it for over three decades now, right? It almost seems like a perfect crime. Yeah, in that sense, it does seem like sort of a perfect crime. Nobody's ever been arrested for it, but it also seems like whoever pulled this off hasn't really been able to get anything out of it. They seemingly haven't ever been able to sell the art. It's way too high profile to, to try to do that in most channels. And there's no evidence of them ever being able to successfully use it as a bargaining chip to get out of prison. And so when I talked to Rob Caldwell, he said this is clearly not the perfect crime because nobody was ever able to cash in on it. There was all the risk and and none of the reward, at least as far as we know. And also potentially the art was lost in that flood, right? We don't really know. Yeah, we don't know if the art is still out there in some sort of you know condition where it'd be able to be restored. We don't know if there was art in that shed, how much of the art was in that shed. A lot of question marks still there. And I do love the fact that the museum still has the frames up on the walls waiting for the return of the art someday, hopefully. Yeah, and the museum totally leans into it. You can learn all about the heist on their website. I'm sure it brings in a lot of visitors who who go to you know see where the heist happened to see those empty frames and all of a sudden find themselves appreciating all of the other art in the museum. Reed, have there been any other recent developments in the past year or so aside from the death of Robert Gentile? Yeah, so with a case this big, there are always news stories out there, but I'll mention 
two big potential developments or revelations that have both come from reporting by Shelley Murphy at the Boston Globe. The first is, is that she reported in February that investigators suspect there's a link between the heist and the 1991 execution-style murder of a guy named James or Jimmy Marks, who was a convicted bank robber. That case is, is officially unsolved, but the deputy police chief in Lynn, Massachusetts, where that murder happened, told The Globe, quote, Marks had connections to the suspect suspected of being involved in the Gardner Museum heist. We don't know what, if any, role he had, but very likely it was related to his death. Boston 25 reported that same month that the museum's security director has been pursuing the theory that the two crimes are connected for more than a decade. And Marx is said to have told people that he had some of the paintings at some point. And then to kind of add to all of this, the wife of Bobby Garenti reportedly told the FBI that her husband is the one who killed Marx. So looking into that case, there may be some clues that could get investigators closer to solving the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist. The other story I'll mention also from Shelley Murphy also more or less fits in with the theory that we heard from Steve Kirkjian. She reported last fall that a jeweler and art appraiser in Boston named Paul Calantropo spoke publicly for the first time about an interaction that he said he had with Bobby Donati, who was an acquaintance of his and, and following Kirkjian's theory was potentially one of the guys involved in the heist. And what Calantropo said is that he and Donati knew each other and that in the spring of 1990, so not too long after the heist, Donati came into his office to have an item appraised. But when Donati pulled that item out, Calantropo said he immediately recognized it as the bronze eagle finial from the Isabella Stewart Gardner. An eagle finial is apparently that little metal eagle you see at the top of a flagpole. So, so Donati asked Calantropo how much it's worth. Calantropo responded by asking him, quote, why didn't you just steal the Mona Lisa? He said he told Donati that, that the thing was worthless because everyone would know it was stolen. And Calantropo told the Globe that that he didn't want to touch it. He didn't want to get his fingerprints on it. He wanted it out of there. And that Donati left, took it with him. And Calantropo says that was the last time he saw the finial or Donati himself as, as Donati was killed the following year. And did Calantropo explain why he's choosing to go public now? Yeah, so he told the Boston Globe that he kept quiet for so long because he feared for his safety. You know, a lot of the conversation surrounding the deaths of guys like Robert Gentile just last year has been that they're potentially taking secrets to the grave with them. But of course, the flip side of that is that, you know, this generation of, of reputed mobsters dying out might make people who know bits and pieces of information feel a little bit more comfortable coming forward. I live in Chicago. There's actually a guy who flipped on the Chicago outfit that gives tours here in town. And so I don't know all that much about the mob in Boston, but but as these criminal organizations die out, there's obviously less fear for anyone who has information to come forward. And presumably that was a factor in this jeweler, Paul Calantropo, deciding to share his story with the Boston Globe. Another detail there is that he said that about five years ago, a friend urged him to go to the FBI and that he did end up meeting with the FBI and told him about that interaction. So this is something that the public hasn't known about, but it hasn't been a secret to investigators, at least for the last five years. Also, according to The Globe, Calantropo has been working behind the scenes with a group of people that's trying to find the artwork. And that group naturally includes Steve Kirkjian. They apparently signed an agreement with the museum in April stipulating that all the different members of that group, so Calantropo, Kirkjian, there's a retired law enforcement official and two former convicts. They would share equally in the reward if they provide information that leads to the return of the artwork in a restorable condition. 
Obviously, we heard Steve Kirkjian's theory that at least some of the artwork was potentially destroyed by flooding in that shed. For his part, Kellen Tropo told The Globe that he thinks Donati just hid it and that the secret location of the artwork died with Bobby Donati. Those are his words. And again, all that information is from reporting by Shelley Murphy at the Boston Globe. And what else have we heard over the years from the FBI? Do we have any insight into where their investigation has taken them? Yeah, maybe the the biggest piece of news from the FBI, it seems like at least in the past decade or so, was a press release that they put out in 2013 where the special agent in charge of the FBI's Boston field office said, quote, the FBI believes with a high degree of confidence that in the years after the theft, the art was transported to Connecticut and the Philadelphia region, and some of the art was taken to Philadelphia where it was offered for sale by those responsible for the theft. The quote continues, with that same confidence, we have identified the thieves who are members of a criminal organization with a base in the mid-Atlantic states and New England, end quote. But the press release says that after that attempted sale, their knowledge of the art's whereabouts is limited. And of course, they have never identified the individuals that they say they identified as the thieves. And read once again, Steve Kirchian's book is Master Thieves, right? That's right. The full title is Master Thieves, the Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist. All right. Thanks to Rob Caldwell from New Center, Maine in Portland, Maine, and also Steve Kirchian for their help on the episode this week. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. Thank you.